Lord Jesus, you send out your spirit, and his work is mysterious to us, but we know he gave the word and he works in our hearts and opens our hearts to the word. So send him again. Open our hearts as we hear your word, open our minds to understand it, and fill us so that we believe it. We pray in your most holy name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay. We're still in the upper room. And uh, Jesus is telling the disciples things to prepare them for when he's not going to be physically present with them. And then one of the things we've had come up again and again is Jesus talks about the, the promise of the counselor or the comforter or uh, remember we had all of those different words nothing in English is quite right the idea of the, the spirit is the one called to be at your side so counselor, comforter, advocate, helper all of those uh, are behind that Greek word. Uh, then we get to verse 8. Uh, I think it, I left off at verse 8 on purpose. Uh, I'm going to back up to verse 7 so that it kind of makes sense, better sense as we go from 7 to 8. Uh, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is good for you that I go away, for if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. About judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. Uh, I remember a time when I was not as familiar with the scriptures as I should have been. And I came across this verse when the Counselor, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I, that surprised me because I often thought of the Holy Spirit's work as gospel work rather than law work. But Jesus here talks about the Holy Spirit doing law work, convicting the world about sin, righteousness, judgment. Uh, somebody remember our, our, our classic definition of the word faith? Spell cat with a K, remember that one? Okay. Well, this is going to come up in the next chapter, too. So, our classic definition of faith, we, that we know what God promises or know what the Word says, we accept it as true, and then we trust. And really, the law is a no-accept-trust thing, too. Uh, I would say it's very much a no-accept-trust matter because you show your trust in God's law with obedience. Uh, so, when the counselor comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then Jesus gives his own comments and his own expansion of it. 
about sin because they do not believe in me. Uh, that reminds me of John chapter 3, after verse 16, where Jesus says, uh, people love darkness. Apart from the Spirit's work, do people see themselves as sinners? You will convict the world about sin. Or without, without Scripture and without the Spirit's work, is it possible to have the correct view or the correct understanding of sin. Yeah, not really. Uh, there is such a thing as the natural knowledge of God and conscience and that people do have some sense of right and wrong. And they do have some sense of a responsibility to somebody. That's really the basis for all other world religions. Uh, if you think of uh, oh, some of the, the stranger things that happen in world religion. Oh, I'm thinking of like the the Incas taking a young girl and abandoning her on a mountaintop so that she's the bride for the gods. Uh, other things like that. Why do they do that? Because they got a sense of guilt. We got to pay for this somehow. We have to appease some kind of creator somehow. Uh, we have to make up for our shortcomings somehow. And then they do these things. Uh, they have some idea of sin and guilt, but it's a very fuzzy one. And so God gives us his written word to clarify. He gives his Holy Spirit to clarify to uh, Uh, yeah, the Spirit will convict the world about sin. Uh, for some reason, that reminded me of a story that a classmate told me. Going way back to when our 1993 hymnal came out. And in the Confession of Sins, there was a phrase, I have done what is evil and failed to do what is good. And my classmate said he was introducing that, and one lady objected. She says, I'm not sure about that phrase. Why, what's wrong with it? She said, I may have done some bad things, but I haven't done anything evil. Does God categorize, categorize sin? No. And left on our own, we'd like to let ourselves off easy, wouldn't we? I haven't done what is evil. That's like the, uh, that's like the number 11 on the scale. I've maybe done uh, number two or number three things, but I haven't done what is evil. Uh, like a little sin or a big sin? A little sin or a big sin, yeah. And that, uh, yeah, and that sin is sin. And maybe she wasn't quite convicted of evil. So, uh, he will convict the world about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. Uh, Righteousness, I often say, take out uh, 
four letters or five letters in the middle. Let's see. One, two, three. Yeah, take out four letters in the middle and you have what righteousness is. Righteousness is rightness. Uh, and there are two ways that the Holy Spirit could convict the world about righteousness. Uh, first of all, do you have it? Apart from God, do you have it? No. And When we try, we're always left, left wondering, did I do enough? Did I do it right? Was my heart really in it? Uh, the other side of righteousness is, uh, what is the Christian's righteousness? And so the, think of the, the old hymn, Jesus, your blood and righteousness are my beauty, my glorious dress. Uh, those who are baptized into Christ are clothed with Christ. Or some, uh, a passage very special to Luther was uh, from Romans 3, the, a righteousness apart from law has been made known. Righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. God gives you Jesus' righteousness. He gives you credit for the, all the goodness of Jesus. And then Jesus gets all the bad credit for all of our sin. And then about judgment... Uh, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. Uh, Satan has already been condemned. Those who follow him will be too. <coughs> and so, without scripture, without the spirit, you can never really understand sin. And you can never really understand the solution for it. Um, then, with verse 12, Jesus says, I have, still have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. Oh, remember that theme that keeps coming up, how the disciples are often clueless, and then later they figure something out. Later they make a connection. And Jesus has that right in this verse. I have many things to tell you. You can't bear them all now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you what is to come. For Jesus himself, many, many times he has said, I've come to do the will of him who sent me. And now he's talking about the Holy Spirit, in the same kind of way. The Spirit isn't going to speak on his own. Uh, we could say that's the unity of the, the, the Trinity. They're not going to go separate directions. Uh, but it's also Jesus was there, the counselor, the advocate for his disciples. Now the Holy Spirit is going to be there, teaching them, guiding them. Uh, giving them the message straight from God. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. That's why I said he takes from what is mine and will declare it for me, to you. Uh, I see that as, well, I and the Father are one. And 
our dear Professor Deutschlander once said that whenever one of the me members of the Trinity speaks about the others, it's always with glowing terms, like the Father speaking from heaven, this is my beloved Son. And here, Jesus talking about the Spirit, but then he says, the Spirit will glorify me. Then, verse 16, this is a passage, one that I remember a lot, one I remember from when I was little, strangely. Uh, in a little while you are not going to see me anymore. And in a little while you will see me because I am going away to the Father. Now, what could that mean? In a little while, you're not going to see me anymore. Remember, this is Thursday night. He's going to ascend into heaven. Okay. That, that's one possibility. The more immediate possibility is... He's going to die and yeah. not be with him for a while, and then afterwards he will... Revisited them. Yeah. Okay, so Friday he'll be die, be in the tomb, and then Sunday night you will appear to them and say, Peace be with you. In a little while you'll see me no more, and in a little while you will see me again. And the other possibility is in a little while you will see me no more, thinking of ascension. And then from Jesus' eternal viewpoint, it's a little while. You will see me again. And then the judgment. And then the judgment. And thinking of how some of the Old Testament prophecies worked, where there was an immediate fulfillment and a long-range fulfillment, I think this is one of those that there's an immediate fulfillment. In a little while you'll see me no more after Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea put me in the tomb. And in a little while you'll see me again on Easter evening. But I think the, the other thought is much sweeter. That for us it's a long time, but for him it's a little while. I think I remember that from one of the devotions that our teachers used to read to us. Don't remember anything more about it, but I remember they always had little visits with God or uh, one of those books. And I remember something about in a little while you will see me no more, in a little while you will see me again. Uh, so, verse 17. Some of his disciples asked one another, what does he mean when he tells us in a little while you are not going to see me, and again in a little while you will see me, and because I am going away to the Father. So they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Uh, the cluelessness of the disciples. Uh, and then Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you trying to determine with one another what I meant by saying, in a little while you're not going to see me, and again in a little while you will see me. Amen, amen, I tell you, you will weep and wail, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. A woman giving birth has pain, but because her time has come, but when she has delivered the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of her joy that a person has been born into the world. Sorrow while the world rejoices.
and maybe even sorrow or joy while the rest of the world is sorrowing. Can you think of any applications to Christian has sorrow while the rest of the world rejoices? of the world, sometimes the rest of the world loves some things that are awful. Mm -hmm. And that everybody is uh, dancing in the street and we're just shaking our heads thinking, how awful. How can somebody celebrate that? Um, uh, yeah, you will weep and wail, but the world will rejoice. Uh, something I get, maybe this is because I am not much of a sports fan. Uh, but sometimes I'm completely dismayed when uh, everybody is rejoicing over a sports team winning. And it's like the biggest thing in the world. And I'm left there thinking, you're going to forget about this in a year, maybe, or less than a year, except everybody remembers the 1968 Ice Bowl, or whenever that was, uh, wonderful memories of Vince Lombardi, sometimes they would still remember that, but the world rejoices over such strange things. And uh, you will weep and wail when the rest of the world rejoices. Uh, verse 21, Jesus uses childbirth as a metaphor. Uh, a woman in childbirth uh, is experiencing pain because the time has come. But when the child comes, then she's happy. We're experiencing pain as the world is winding down. But then, when it's all done, we'll be happy. Uh, so perhaps this is a hint for us. What is Jesus, which little while is Jesus talking about? Friday to Sunday or ascension to judgment day? And here Jesus talks about weep and wail while the rest of the world rejoices, that tells me that this might be a long-term uh, little while that he's talking about. So, verse 22, you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your heart will rejoice and no one will take away, take your joy away from you. That sounds heavenly. In that day you will not ask me anything. Amen, amen, I tell you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will be received, so that your joy may be complete. That joy may be complete, that's a phrase that repeats a lot. I think I talked about that before. Uh, some of the, the world's joy, that, that's not complete. Sometimes that leaves us asking for more. Is that all there is? Uh, several places, Jesus says something like this. He will, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you.
So God, I want a new car. Does that work? What's also part of that? We not only ask for things in Jesus' name, oh, this is kind of built right into the Lord's Prayer, too. We ask for things in line with God's will. As Jesus taught us to pray and as he prayed himself, your will be done. Uh, sometimes we ask for what we want and God answers our prayers by changing what we want. Or by showing us we don't really need that and that our joy is complete without certain things. But he still invites us to ask. Verse 25. Uh, I have told you these things using figurative language. Oh, remember our, our discussion of metaphor. A time is coming when I will no longer speak to you using figurative language but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I am not telling you that I will make requests on, of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I am going to leave the world and go to the Father. This whole section Well, it's a lot like, I go to prepare a place for you. I am returning to the Father. Uh, as he de departs, his connection to the Father remains, and the Father's connection to us remains. Uh, verses 27 and 28 uh, reminds me a lot of John chapter 1. Remember John chapter 1 and how that starts out our uh, thoughts on who is Jesus? Remember, in the beginning was the Word. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. Uh, and verse 27 says, I came from God. Not just a teacher who pops up, uh, but he came from God and is returning. Uh, so, verse 29. Yes, his disciples said, now you're speaking plainly, not using figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and do not need to have anyone ask you anything. For this reason, you, we believe that you came from God. Uh, the, the cluelessness of the disciples, that lifts. Uh, then, remember, before we had this passage where, where Jesus is talking in such warm terms, and then bang, if the world hated you, Remember that it hated me first. Well, now we have a return to that theme. Jesus answered them, Now do you believe? Listen, a time is coming. In fact, it is here when you will be scattered, everyone to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not going to be alone because the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that you may have peace in me. In this world you are going to have trouble. But be courageous, I have overcome the world. Well, here Jesus is, must be speaking about 
what's going to happen later, later Thursday night. <clears throat> Judas gives Jesus a kiss, and then what happens? He's arrested. He's arrested, and then what happens to the disciples? They run away and they hide, they scatter. Uh, so you will leave me all alone. But then what does he say? Yet I am not alone. Because the Father is with me. When, on Good Friday, uh, there's that point where he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? It seems like that point on the cross. There are other places. If you think of the first word on the cross. Father. Father, forgive them. And then the, the last word from the cross uh, also begins with Father. In, yeah, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished is, is probably the sixth. There are some disagreements what order, exact order they should be in, but we have a pretty good idea which one is the first one and which one is the last one. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So on the cross, he was alone for a while, for part of it, maybe for most of it, but at the beginning, Father, forgive. Father, into your hands. Uh, 1633 uh, I've told you these things so that you may have peace in me in this world you're going to have trouble but be courageous or take heart I have overcome the world uh, yeah. think of that Verse, in this world you're going to have trouble. There are some preachers, some TV preachers that talk about prosperity all the time. Uh, God wants you to live the abundant life. What does this verse say about that? It says it's not paradise, you're going to have trouble. Yeah. Uh, it, it says the exact opposite. There's a, a Christian humor website, and they made a video of. Uh, the martyrs read Joel Osteen quotes. Live your best life now. Live like each day is a Friday. And what happened to the apostles? They were martyred. Yeah. Did they did they live their best life now? Uh, Really, they did, but not in a worldly way. Uh, or, now this one's going to hit hard. I might even make some of you mad. Should I do it anyway? Apply this. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but to be courageous, I have overcome the world. Apply this to the idea 
of Christians voting as a block to try to legislate bits and pieces of the Christian faith. Uh, Pat Robertson for president. Oh, that was 30 years ago, wasn't it? Or Jerry Falwell's moral majority. Yeah, let's, as Christians, let's make the world a better place by political means. Are we going to make the world a better place that way? Is everything going to be, are we going to make everything wonderful? No, because it tells us right here that it isn't. Yeah, in this world you're going to have trouble. But what does Jesus say about the trouble? I have overcome the world. I have overcome it. Now, make an application to your own life. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Did you ever think everything was going to go perfect? Either the older you get, the less you think that. That's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, everything's going to be just perfect. I think there's a part of us, I think it's, it's the old Adam, wants everything to be perfect as a, as a selfish thing. I think we all do that. In this world, you're going to have trouble. I looked in... Deutschlander's book on the theology of the cross, I could not find it. Uh, I think it might have been a comment on this verse that in this world you're going to have trouble. What do you expect from the world? What do you expect to see on the front page of the newspaper? Uh, and when things go well, you can be pleasantly surprised. But what do you expect from the world? Jesus says it right here. In this world, you will have trouble. And connecting that to the theology of the cross, uh, when we talk about Christians bearing the cross, there's, there's many things that go with that. One is Christians suffer for the sake of the gospel, or Christians suffering simply because they're Christians. That's bearing the cross. Being a child of God, but you're living in a broken world. That's a, a cross to bear, too. You live in a broken world that has disease and hardship in it. So Christians are going to suffer that way, the same as the rest of the world. But it all falls under this. In this world, you will have trouble. Um, yeah, that's kind of a, kind of lets the air out of your balloon. Well, the world gives you nothing. And the Savior gives you a everlasting life. The world gives you something that will keep you pacified for the next five minutes. Something like that. Or for the next two hours if it's football. Um, but anything lasting? All right. That's chapter 16. Then chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And very often we read sections of this after Easter, between Easter and Ascension. Uh, for our lessons in church, uh, because we're bridging the risen Christ, but preparing to depart to his Father. So this is uh, 
chapter 17 with Jesus' high priestly prayer, that's all about Jesus praying about his disciples uh, that his Father would strengthen them when he's gone. First of all, uh, why does Jesus pray? Or why, why would he have to? Because of who he is. Why does Jesus pray? Why would he have to? Well, remember where he is. It's Thursday night. In the upper room, or possibly walking with his disciples. So he is with his disciples. So why does he pray? To show them what yeah. to do, to show us what to do. Yeah. Or to show them he's entrusting them to the Father. Uh, and then by example, too. Uh, yeah, I think of. Uh, I think many people go through this at one time or another in their life. Many Christians go through this at one time or another in their lives. That uh, uh, sometimes the words for prayer just don't come. Or you start to think, God knows everything, so why, why should I bother to tell him? Well, if anybody could have said, God already knows what I'm thinking, Jesus could have said that because he and the Father are one. But because of his, what are his two natures? Eternal and man. Yeah, right. the, the divine and the human nature. He still has his human nature. And so, according to his human nature, he still has to pray. Uh, he prays because he needs it. So, why should we be so proud to say that we don't need prayer? Remember a quote from Orson Welles. Remember him? Citizen Kane and then all the Paul Masson commercials? Uh, but, uh, that he was quoted once. Somebody asked him about spirituality or prayer, and he said, God is an artist, and I would not want to bore an artist. No, God invites us to pray, tells us to pray. Jesus, by his example, shows us and teaches us to pray. Okay, we have uh, two main sections uh, of Jesus' high priestly prayer. First, he pre prays... Uh, oh, for himself, about himself, but I say two sections, really three. First is he prays about himself, uh, and then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for those who will believe in their message. Uh, so the first section. After Jesus had spoken these things, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Let's pause there. What did we learn about Jesus and his use of the word glory and glorify? Contrast his use of the word glorify with 
the rest of the world. The rest of the world thinks of glory how? Winning. Kings on gilded thrones. People serving you as glory. How does Jesus think of glory? Or when he says, Father, the, the time has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Uh, Palm Sunday afternoon, Jesus looks up to heaven and says, Father, glorify your name, and the voice thunders, I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. What kind of glory is he thinking of? This takes us back to theology of the cross, too. Well, worshiping and believing God. Okay. And how did Jesus do that? And how did Jesus attain a certain kind of glory? He is God. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what does he do with that divine nature? Remember the steps that I had? He sets it aside. Yeah. And expresses his love through his own sacrifice, enduring shame and pain. Uh, and that in the worst, he's accomplishing the best. That's glory. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. You gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to all those you have given him. Perhaps we've got to stop after verse 2 and say, who is Jesus? Savior. It's our Savior, and even, even in his humility, he has authority over all flesh. Uh, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Uh, this takes me back to chapter 1. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, that they may know you. Uh, uh, no one has seen God, but the only begotten who has come from the Father has made him known. Jesus uses the word gloria in the next verses too. I have glorified you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me at your own side with the glory I had at your side before the world existed. Back to chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the word. And now the first section of the high priestly prayer, he prays for the disciples. I revealed your name to the disciples, or to the, to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they held on to your word. Now they know everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they received them. They learned the truth that I came from you. They believed that you sent me. Uh, remember last week we had a passage where Jesus talks about calling his disciples out of the world. Did I still have it up there? Oh, I still have it up there, but it's in Greek. Uh, remember I said, I have called them out of the world. That's really the definition of what word. Remember that? 
Ecclesiastes. Yeah, Ecclesia is the uh, the Greek word for church, which means one group that's called out of another, or like Peter says, that you've been called out of darkness into God's wonderful light. Uh, and here Jesus talks about, I revealed your name to those you gave me out of the world. Uh, that That's really the idea behind that word for church. Uh, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. I gave them the words you gave me and they received them. They learned the truth that I came from you. They believed that you sent me. Uh, Look at verses 7 and 8. And this is one place where, remember our classic definition of faith, and I just said it 10 minutes ago, so you should still remember it. Spelling cat with a K. No, accept, and Yeah, no, accept, and trust. And we have them all right here. Uh, Jesus talks about, I taught them, I instructed them, and now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. Uh, I gave them the words you gave me, and they received them. That's pretty close to accept. Uh, when we talk about that is in our definition of faith, accept uh, means you understand it as true. Uh, and then they learn the truth I came from that you and they believe that you sent me. Uh, that's all in line with that definition of faith. There's no accept and trust. Uh, so this is this is what I've done now this is what I want for them when I'm gone. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. All that's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine, and I'm glorified in them. I am no longer going to be in the world, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name, which you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I kept those you gave me safe in your name. I protected them, and not one of them was destroyed except the son of destruction, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Uh, verse 10 we see this unity of the Father and the Son. Remember, I and the Father are one. What's yours is mine. What's mine is yours. Uh, and I'm glorified in them. Uh, Jesus prays for his disciples as a group that he's called out or a group that the Father's given him, but they're still in the world. This is probably what we need to think of, read and study and think about when, if we're using that phrase, we're in the world but not of it. Uh, in the world, that's where we have to be. Uh, but not of it. Well, of means belonging to, doesn't it? Or controlled by the world, uh, associated with the world. Uh, so in the world and not of it. Uh, had a thought, and I knew I wrote it down, but I wrote it down for a different verse, so we'll have to get to that later. Um, so Jesus continues, I am coming to you, 
And I'm saying these things in the world so that they may be filled with joy. I've given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Uh, we have repeats of, of themes that we've heard before. Uh, the world is going to hate you just as it hated me. Uh, we've had Jesus' uh, request for protection of his disciples. Uh, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Uh, can you think of people in Christian history who have tried to separate themselves from the world? Monasteries. Yeah, Martin Luther was one of them. Yeah, go join a monastery. He's separate from the world. Can you think of anybody today who does that? Amish. Yeah. Uh, the Amish, let's be separate from the world. Uh, and I suppose you could think of any cult, or any colony, uh, any group of people for religious reasons that go off somewhere on their own. And how successful have they been? What about the preacher that took all them people down? Where was it? Jonestown. 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 Yeah, there was Jonestown, and then there was David Koresh, and Probably a bunch we've never heard of. How successful are they at separating from the world? They've got their problems too. Uh, and uh, that the problem is even though Jesus has called us out of the world, we're still in the world. And then even within, what do we still have? Old Adam. Old Adam. Or sinful flesh, sinful human nature. And so you get any group of people together, well, that qualifies as world, doesn't it? And so... No matter how spiritual you try to be, the world and its temptations are always there. Verse 17, a very familiar passage, and I think it's, it's a good one to leave off on. Uh, Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, what does sanctify mean? Make holy. Make holy, okay. And now what does holy mean? With God, of God, belonging to God. That's not bad. Uh, hope, the word holy or the concept of holy really means that something is set apart for a high purpose. Uh, so what is what is sanctify mean it means to to set somebody apart for a, a good purpose or a higher purpose um, and uh, I actually have a prop 
today that that I prepared ahead of time uh, to get to understand the idea of holy or something set apart. I sometimes tell this silly story. Uh, did you know that at Quick Trip you can get your cappuccino for 89 cents if you bring your own cup? Uh, if you don't bring your own cup, you use one of theirs, it's it's a dollar nineteen. But you can get it for 89 cents if you bring your own cup. And so I have my own cup. So I take my cup to Quick Trip so I can get my 89 cents cappuccino. Something strange about that. What? Oh, it's a chill. Which to me, that's yeah. a special cup. Yeah. Yeah. What's it supposed to be for? Well, yeah. It's set apart for that higher purpose. And for me to take this to Quick Trip to get, uh, first of all, it'd be very easy to spill. Be hot. It, 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 the whole thing would be to get hot. It's not made for that purpose. They have styrofoam cups for that purpose. And we have cups like this for this purpose. And the same thing is true when we talk about people being sanctified. Sanctify them by the truth. Set them apart for your high purpose with the truth. Um, and that kind of turns work righteousness on its head. Sanctify them and get them to do, to do good, all kinds of good things and sanctify them that way. Does Jesus say that? How does he sanctify us? With the truth which is found in the word. We hear the word. This is connected to the Lord's prayer, to your kingdom come. We hear the word of God. God rules in our hearts. God lifts us up that way. Uh, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, later we'll hear Pontius Pilate say, what is truth? Does he have any concept of Something that is absolutely true, always true. Uh, or was Pontius Pilate a, a kind of a cynic like me who doesn't really trust anything anymore? Uh, so sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. Uh, as you sent me into the world, I also send them into the world. I sanctify myself for them, so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. When you think of that concept of setting apart for a high purpose, verse 19 makes sense then. I set myself apart for this high purpose of redemption so that they also may be sanctified. Okay, that's the section about the disciples. So we'll stop there for tonight. And we welcome Marge back. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, take your word of truth and work within us and sanctify us 
set us apart for your high purpose so that we can do your will, moved by your spirit, so that we can know the high purpose that you've called us out of the world for. And lift us up. You've told us in this world we will have trouble, but that you have overcome the world. So work within us so that we may overcome it with you. Amen.